This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Politics and power is a realm of relative influence, wrote Farid Zakari in his book, The Post-American World. So as China expands its role, whose role is diminishing? Of course, the established power, the United States. It's not possible for two countries to be the leading dominant political power at the same time, he concluded. Would it surprise you to learn that the defining Western trope about China as a sleeping tiger, with its implicit when, not if, mortal danger, is probably two centuries old, based as it is on something apocryphal that Napoleon Bonaparte may or may not have said? The West has observed China closely, almost breathlessly at times, for a very long while, We study the country suspiciously through interchangeable lenses of insecurity, xenophobia, and exoticist fascination. But how often do we actually try to understand our differences, to value them, to try to build bridges? My guest today was born in China and grew up in the UK. She is the Spectator's broadcast editor and host of the acclaimed podcast Chinese Whispers. When I heard her contribution to our sister series, Doomsday Watch, I just knew I needed a lot more of her insight. Welcome to the bunker, Cindy Yu. Thank you so much, Alex. Cindy, can we start with the Winter Olympics? Why are they so important to Xi Jinping? So I think historically, sports has always been a good way for a controversial communist government in China to bridge gaps, basically. And you can Mm. see that all the way starting from ping pong diplomacy, which is the sport that underlay the rapprochement between the US and China as China was coming out of the Cultural Revolution, where ping pong teams of both countries, you know, were very well received in playing a few friendly games. So in that vein, you know, sports offers this non-political way of making friends, of showing off your soft power. And nowhere do we see that more than in 2008 with the opening ceremony, which was just an amazing feast for the eyes for over four hours. Very bank-breaking in terms of how much money they spent on it. But the whole idea was to show off China, its soft power, its history, its culture, and also its modernity to the world, given what China had recently gone through you know, in its communist past. And so the Winter Olympics is a similar kind of task, except, of course, you know, Winter Olympics never matter as much to the viewer. They have smaller budgets. Um, And this particular one, China is in a different political space to 2008, which means that even sports isn't quite enough to get rid of the politics this time round. I was reading something she said when the bid for the game succeeded, and he explicitly sort of linked them to what he calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This contains the implicit suggestion that what preceded his premiership was decline. Is that <laughs> true? Yeah, I mean, I think the diplomatic Chinese way of answering that question 
would be not before he himself was a decline, but what he inherited was an upward trend under the Chinese Communist Party. What the decline was is a century of humiliation between the first opium war and the Chinese Communist Party would say the 1949 communist takeover, which they call mm, liberation mm. of China. So that 100 years, that's a century of humiliation in official law. And that's what Xi Jinping is finalizing the rejuvenation of. So it wasn't particularly a dig at his predecessors in the Communist Party as such, because he would have said that they also led China on an upward trend. But I think if you ask a lot of Chinese people, they probably would date that upward trend from reform and opening in 1978, where China opened up its economy rather than 1949. So it's a framing device. It's his equivalent of make America great again. Exactly, exactly. And and that again is really important. It's a nationalist call. Even though they're communists, they hark back to this Chinese nationalism, which is millennia old. And they're harking back to that, really. Now, the build-up to the Games internationally was dominated by the story surrounding the tennis player, Peng Shuai, who appeared to criticise a party official of rape, then disappeared, then reappeared, claiming most recently in L'Equipe that it was all an enormous misunderstanding. What do you think happened? I think what happened with her was that she had this on-off relationship with this former vice premier of the Chinese Communist Party, clearly a very important person. And it sounds like, and this is something that wasn't reported on much, but at the end of her statement, she says that you chucked me aside again. So it sounds like he broke up with her or was ghosting her. And that happened two days before the statement came out on November 2nd. So she had a tough breakup, basically. And she went on to Weibo and came out with this very emotional statement. But she probably didn't even quite realize what she was saying because the way she described their first encounter or their reunion of their latest fling is pretty, you know, non-consensual, <laughs> I think, by a lot of people's standards. But maybe she never thought about it in those terms, and that's why she was able to be so candid about it. But she certainly, you know, said things like, you brought me to your home after we played tennis, your wife was there, I didn't want to do this, I cried all afternoon, in the end, you know, we did have sex. You know, that, that doesn't sound consensual to a lot of people, I would say. Regardless, that statement went live, it went global, not least because of the feminist movement in China, which clearly saw problems with it. And as you say, Peng Shui then disappeared for a little bit. And now she's saying, I never said anything about lack of consent. I never said anything about sexual assault. And my take on that is, yes, you didn't actually explicitly say the words rape or sexual assault. But, you know, you don't have to use those words in order for what you describe to actually be those things. And what happened in between clearly was that Because of her accusations, the state got her. I don't think it's one of those cases like with activists where you get locked up and sometimes they say they're tortured, uh, have forced confession and that sort of thing. I don't think it would be like that for her because she's essentially a sports personality. She's not a political dissident. She never intended to be a political dissident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was likely under house arrest and no one could get in contact with her. So they probably took away her phones and all that sort of thing. And her friends and family were clearly co-opted. Her coach in one of these state-run clips of her at a restaurant. So they were clearly there saying, you know, you don't want to do this, do you, if you want a career in China? That kind of soft pressure on her. So, well, yeah, I mean, that's where we're at now. She said that she never meant to say those things. She never meant it in that way. You see, the specifics of that case aside, I do find it interesting. Is there a, a valid sort of broader point that there is a linguistic and cultural barrier between China and the West that leads to sort of frequent misreading of events, intentions, statements, all of that. 
Yeah, I personally think there is. With the Ponchai statement, you know, it was a pretty long statement. And what I took away from it, reading it in Chinese, was that this is a woman who's had a really disastrous love affair. And she was poignantly blaming herself. You know, she kept saying stuff like, I'm not a good girl. I know this is not the way things are meant to be, all this sort of stuff. And she clearly loved him. You know, she wrote all this stuff about how they play tennis together, they play chess together. He would talk to her about history, economics. Now, none of that justifies what happened to her by him. But the Western reporting really, I think, missed that side of things, that she really did love him. It was an affair, maybe didn't start in the most consensual way, but she didn't see herself as a victim, if you see what I mean. And I think that's the sort of thing that gets lost in translation. No, I get that. I get that completely. I think it's it's quite symptomatic of a sort of a propensity to jump to worst case scenario sometimes. And, and I think COVID is a clear example of that. There was a real focus on assigning culpability that started from a place of suspicion, it seemed to me, that just wouldn't be there if the virus had originated in Norway or France. Do you think this is a rod that China makes for its own back to an extent by being secretive? Or is it a case of the West's pre-existing suspicion just looking for confirmation bias, basically? Or is it both? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think it's both. I think mm. China does not make it easy for itself at all. There's been interesting academia done into this, whether or not China historically has enjoyed scrutiny from outside sources or understood diplomacy through communication. You know, it, it tends to kind of shut in on itself. This kind of Confucian idea of authority means that you don't ever feel like you have to explain yourself. So there are all sorts of theories for why it is, but I don't think China makes it easy for itself. And, you know, using COVID as an example, it did cover up. Taiwan had to use message boards from Wuhan in order to say, actually, there's something going on here. And Mm. China at that point was denying that anything was happening. So there was a cover up. And so China can't act as a victim of, you know, stereotyping when, you know, a lot of that stereotype sometimes is true. I think There is also a confirmation bias from the Western side, though, of always expecting the worst from China. You know, one example of this is in the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party last year, Xi Jinping gave a really interesting speech. It was a lot of it was about rejuvenation of the great Chinese people, blah, 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 blah. There was a lot of it on peace and peace building and saying we have to develop in a world that cooperates and all those sort of stuff. You know, it doesn't make for very good headlines. And the headlines instead ran on a much more belligerent statements mm-hmm. in, in his speech. So, you know, we, we, we cherry pick when we look at China. And I think, you know, we, we need to just be mindful of the cherry picking that there's always going to be that other more complicated translation out there. But of course, it is difficult because, you know, Chinese as a language is not exactly in, super accessible. So I can totally understand why the situation is like this at the moment. But I guess we just have to check our prejudices. When you mentioned the tendency to shut in on itself when it feels challenged. Do you think the zero COVID policy has been a success or has it become yet another barrier between China and the rest of the world? Mm, That's a great question. I think it is yet another barrier because people from the outside world don't quite understand why this last remaining country still thinks it can eradicate COVID, which, you know, everyone else has pretty much accepted is going to be here forever now. Mm. On the other hand, you know, you ask, is it a success? I think that depends on who you're asking. What do we mean by success? Do we mean the least lives lost? Do we mean the least economic impact? 
Because on both of those counts, so far, China has been successful. And in fact, one of the most successful countries, you know, it's it's got 4,000 deaths to date, if you trust the figures. But even if you don't, and you multiply that by some factor of 10 or whatever, it's still, you know, a lower. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And in terms of economics, obviously, we can't trust all of the data that comes out. And a lot of the data is not going to be as transparent. Yet, we do know that China did grow in 2020, and it grew in 2021 as well. And the way it did that was because though zero COVID is brutal, it shuts down a city within about a month. COVID has gone from that city and it can therefore go back to normality and the economy goes back to a more normal time than the restrictions that are semi-permanent in other parts of the world. So it really depends on what you mean by success or if you mean by success, like liberty, protection of your data, you know, all these other things that the Chinese government don't necessarily see as a metric you know, you will have different answers to that question. All these barriers, why do you think they matter or appear to matter less when it comes to Xi's relationship with Putin? I guess what I'm asking is, is the alliance purely strategic or do these two nations and these two leaders genuinely have more in common, sort of culturally almost? Yeah, I think they do. In one recent episode of Chinese Whispers, I looked at this topic and my guest, who is Alexander Gabia from the Carnegie Moscow Centre, pointed out that Putin is not going to be asking Xi what's happening with Peng Shui or what's happening in Xinjiang. And, and Hong, uh, Xi is not going to be asking Putin who poisoned Alexei Navalny. So, you know, there are these things that those two leaders don't see as problems in how they're running their countries, that they share those values, not necessarily ideological values, just like a way of doing things that in the West we don't share. I think partly it's also sometimes in the West we do share those values, but we don't like to say that we do. One example is espionage. China and Russia spy on each other because, you know, they're not that close allies. But Putin understands, and I think she does as well, which is that great powers spy on each other. That's just what they do. I mean, what else is the intelligence <laughs> community for? And obviously, we know that America does that to its Western allies. You know, it was interesting in the discussion around Christine Lee, the Chinese agent who has been accused of giving money to Labour MPs, that, you know, suddenly that triggered a lot of, oh, China has espionage activities on us, therefore they can't be our friend at all. Well, I mean, I kind of don't really understand what else we pay spies for. <laughs> so yeah. I think sometimes we need to recognize the values that we also hold. We just don't like to talk about it so much. Yeah. And the, the other thing I don't understand about that particular case is the accusation that Labour should have somehow known that this person's donations were coming directly from the Communist Party of China based purely on the fact that this woman is of Chinese heritage which I found really quite bizarre because what they're saying effectively is that you should treat a donation from anyone that looks Chinese, even if they are a British citizen, with suspicion. And that wasn't something really that was discussed at all. On Ukraine, China's position seems to me to be slightly more ambivalent than in the past. Is Putin overstepping the mark even for China's liking, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, this is one of our prejudices about China, that it's a belligerent state, that it's an enemy state, therefore it must enjoy other enemy states <laughs> triggering us yeah. into war. But I don't think it's quite so simple as that. I'll start by saying I think what's happening now is a sweet spot for China, which is that American attention is diverted into Ukraine and what's happening on the border there. But there is no war. So it likes the lack of scrutiny from Washington, 
but China wouldn't actually enjoy a war. For one, because it would not want to divert any of its military resources to helping Russia. They're not at that stage of their alliance yet. It has other geopolitical priorities. For another is because it has economic interests in Ukraine, which depend on peace. So in the last few years, China has poured over $2 billion into Ukraine as a part of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's not going to be wanting those things to be scuppered by war. So I don't actually think that China will be wanting or egging on war. And some people say, you know, China wants it so that it can invade Taiwan. But I kind of think if China's going to invade Taiwan, and it is considering doing that, what's happening on Ukraine border is not going Mm -hmm. to matter for that. It will just invade Taiwan if it wants to, and if it's ready to. I have to say that's my impression too, that the overriding interest at the moment is the same as really for any other nation in the world. China wants, you know, low energy prices and stability so that the global economy can recover after the pandemic. 20 years ago, there were a lot of books roughly under the heading, let's say, Futurology. And every single one of them was certain that by the year 2020, China would emerge as the unmatched, unchallenged superpower. Has this happened? Was it exaggerated? Is it delayed? I think the Chinese loved those books, and especially if they were written by Westerners. <laughs> um, so I think there's someone called Martin Jacques, and then there were books like, you know, When China Rules the World, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, they, they were very well received <laughs> inside China as a kind of, I guess, as a kind of fiction. I think, you know, interestingly, what is now being discussed is a multipolar world. So inside China, people are seeing the pandemic as a way of resetting international relations. You know, historically, we say that wars reset international relations and power dynamics. China, the Beijing government, some of the academics close to that have written papers saying, actually, the COVID-19 pandemic is one such geopolitical event, even though it's a health event rather than a war. And so what dynamic comes out of that? Actually, Beijing expects it to be one of many strong powers. It doesn't want to be, or maybe it does want to be, but it doesn't think that it is going to emerge out of this year as the sole power in the same way that America did out of World War II. It thinks that America will still be here to stay, but its power is waning. Other countries such as Russia will become incredibly important power brokers in this kind of multipolar world. And then other actors like India, the EU, Britain, what they do in terms of which side they ally on, because China doesn't think that that's a foregone conclusion yet, that those are Western allies. That will be very interesting to see. So it's very much ready to play the game when it comes to it. And I think, you know, when we think about China overtaking America, that's too simplistic. Very rarely do we have a unipolar world. And I don't think China's expecting that either. But it will make things much more difficult for the American-led world order. Yes, I see. I see what you're saying. Certainly around the time of Brexit referendum and Trump's election, it seemed to me that the EU was gravitating towards China and that was going to be the sort of separation. But obviously, Biden has changed that calculation, I think. China seemed to turn, let's say, 20 years ago, it seemed to turn fully towards a sort of hybrid authoritarian capitalism model, where it was going to effectively shift its external demand to internal demand. That's where it saw its growth coming. She's now talking about the common prosperity agenda and seems to be pivoting to a sort of softer, scandy socialist economic model. And again, it's impossible for me as an outsider to know what of that is political puff Mm. and what of that is genuine intention. What's going on? 
Yeah, I mean, common prosperity is something that he started talking much more about last year. It's a term that dates all the way back to Mao, so it's not a term that he coined. But what he's using it in terms of is, if you imagine an income distribution curve in China at the moment, there are a lot of billionaires and not very many people in the middle, and there's still a lot of people, you know, really in the bottom rung, even if they're out of absolute poverty, as the party claims, they're still pretty poor. So what C wants to do is create what he calls an olive-shaped income distribution. So you have a much more healthy distribution of incomes throughout society, and to bring up the bottom. As well, so as you say, if that succeeds, that would ideally look like some kind of Scandi model. Two problems with that: one is that he hasn't actually said enough about it to make it seem as if it is not political. Because what's happened so far under Common Prosperity is this bashing of billionaires <laughs> rather than bringing many people up per se. You know, they're talking to people like Jack Ma from Alibaba. They're talking to people like Pony Ma from Tencent companies. You know, the Evergrande CEO Xu Jiaying. You know, all these big billionaires. They're wrapping them on the knuckle, punishing them through regulations. They're getting them personally and their companies to donate billions into the common prosperity cause. But we don't actually know what that really means, what that money is going to be used for. Obviously, it's only been a year since he started talking about it, so I think this year we'll hear more about it. But that's one thing. So, what does it mean other than just bashing the rich for now? And the other thing is that you know they need to be talking about more of a welfare state if that is what they're going for. If a Scandi system is what they're going for, they need to bring up. That welfare safety net, and in China, actually, the safety net is very, very poor. In part, I think that's because you rely on your family members more. You know, the structure of the Confucian society means that you're more likely to look after your parents, even when they're、yeah. old, and they don't need care homes and they don't need pensions as such because you've got a family structure there. But regardless, whatever it is, you know, for the poorest in society, it is still a pretty tough life. And one thing that they could be looking at is household registration. It's one of those old policies where to prevent hyper urbanization happening too quickly, they said that people living in the city, born in the city, they have a right to be here. They have access to certain education, healthcare, whatever it is. If you're migrating into a city, you have to go through certain hoops in order to get those rights, and your household is not registered technically in the city, which means that sometimes you know out of towners who are there for a job actually found it very hard to. Climb up the social ranks because you literally can't access the same kind of privileges as city、mm. dwellers. So that's a kind of system, policy system that they could change, but we actually haven't heard much about. I'm open-minded. Let's see what this year brings, but it doesn't seem like it's quite Sweden yet. Yeah, exactly. I'm very interested in what you were saying because I have to say Greece is one of the EU countries that probably has one of the closest relationships with China. The two countries genuinely get along very well and have very close ties. And all the Chinese people I've met who have come to Greece to do business place this on the fact that the family unit is very strong in Greece and、mm. we respect our elders. And they see this as a real sort of cultural commonality. And Greece, of course, is Is one of the countries that, during the financial crisis, which hit it very hard, the effects were not as extreme as anyone expected at the social level. Again, because families kind of、mm. shrunk into single units, and and there were entire households that were living off one pension, basically, just revert to that model. China sort of borrows bits of economic. 
systems from the West, but without the actual democracy that goes with them. Can that kind of hodgepodge hold, or will it rupture? And if it does rupture, which way will it rupture? Towards more democracy or towards less of it? What I'm saying, I guess, is when you create a middle class, a middle class is richer, it's better educated, yeah. and it begins to expect things of you as the state. Yeah. So it seems to me it's storing up a little bit of trouble. Well, I think that's what people were hoping for, you know, in the whole 90s end of history kind of period, yeah. right? But I think what's happening in China is that the middle class is pretty big, and yet a middle class political movement is not really there to be seen. Why is that? I, I don't know why historically it is, but now I can look at the middle class, you know, people like my family and friends who live in China, and I feel like COVID has radicalized them much more. It's made them into much more pro-China actors in terms of their public opinion because they see that China has dealt with it well in their eyes, bearing in mind that security versus liberty calculus that they would always choose security anyway. And they see that the West, actually, the more that the West bashes China, the more it allows the Chinese media to manipulate that into some kind of anti-China feeling or into some kind of, they still don't understand us, you know, this kind of victimization narrative which makes a lot of Chinese people actually feel like they don't want the same system that's caused chaos in the outside world. And the outside world is just out to get you regardless. And there's a feeling of inevitability mm. about the confrontation with America at the moment. So I think that's what's happening at the moment. Finally, I was looking at something a sort of emergent Xi Jinping said in, in 2012 in Cuba, it was one of those rare unguarded moments from him where he said, and I quote, some foreigners with full bellies and nothing better to do engage in finger pointing at us. First, China does not export revolution. Second, it does not export famine and poverty. And third, it does not mess around with you. Now, obviously, not all of this is true. But there is something that, on a basic level, I don't understand. And that's why I want us to end with this question. And I know, of course, you can't answer it definitively. Does she, and by extension China, want to dominate the international community? Or do they want to fully belong to it as equals? I think neither. I think the view that they want to overthrow everything about the international community is misguided. If they did want to do that, they wouldn't be creating their alternatives, which look very similar in format. For example, the Asia yeah, Infrastructure yeah. Bank, that kind of thing. Joining things like RCEP, trying to join ASEAN as well, you know, trying to join all of these multilateral organizations. If they really didn't care about rules and systems in that govern our world, they wouldn't try to do that. Rather, I think what they would like to do is more of an American model, which is that you belong to the system, but you can also have a greater say in deciding the rules of the system. And when outcomes don't suit you, you have more leeway and leverage to mm. you know, elbow your way into getting successful outcomes. For example, in the same way that America does in several trade disputes at the World Trade Organization, which again, yeah. because we are beneficiaries of the American-led system, we don't see as a problem. But China would like the same kind of rights that, you know, it wants a reliable world in which it can do business, for example, you know, in terms of what we talked about with Ukraine. But also it wants to say, actually, let us be able to bend the rules in the same way that America can. And it would be good for them, obviously, if they were the only people who could bend the rules. So that ambition is certainly there. Fascinating. Cindy, you, thank you so much for your time and, and for your patience with my 101 level questions.
No, not at all. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday mornings, your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Saturday and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And you can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. When billionaire Stephen Schwartzman created the biggest endowment for US students to study in China, 300 million in total, he said, China is no longer an elective course, it's core curriculum. In the words of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, globalization has created an interlocking fragility. At no time in the history of the universe has the cancellation of a Christmas order in New York meant layoffs in China. This creates the illusion of stability. It is only when we accept that our fates are inextricably linked and concentrate on building understanding that we begin to glean solutions. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. <laughs>